This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. It felt like really, especially in the summer, like June, July, it felt like we were on the brink of some kind of civil war or like really revolutionary. And being out there in the streets, it felt like this is different. This is pushing the envelope in a way that I've never experienced before. And like this could really change things. This could make really make things happen. Hello and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. Twenty twenty was a watershed year for our politics and for all of us individually. I've wanted to do an episode on the many facets of 2020, but it's been hard to know where to start. Whenever I pictured that year, I ended up coming back to the same place, my home, where I live, where I spent 95% of my time in 2020 under pandemic lockdown. Uh, My home happens to be a housing cooperative um, where I live with nine other member residents. Uh, It's not like an activist collective. It's just a a group of ordinary people who wanted to live in what's called a group equity housing cooperative. So these are the people with whom I experienced 2020. I thought it would be interesting to revisit 2020 with this group of people to have a look at the year from the ground up, not from the heights of politics or policymaking or movement strategy, but just the pandemic and everything that came along with it that year as we lived through it. So consider this just an informal conversation among friends about what 2020 was like from our small corner of the world. Before we get into it, uh, allow me to begin by briefly summarizing some of the topics we discuss as they relate to the themes of this show. In this conversation, I hear us describing the ways that we felt protected and the ways we felt vulnerable. 2020 really laid that bare. We happen to be protected by being members of a group equity housing co-op against housing insecurity and isolation at a time when many of people in the world were facing those challenges. So we were really aware and thankful for the protection we had. Some of us ended up protected and even boosted by pandemic unemployment checks so long as they lasted. In the background, though, we all were dealing with the fundamental fear of the illness, both for our own sake and on behalf of our families and friends knowing that anyone could get it at any time. And also that year were escalating stakes in the streets as right-wing militant groups and the left-wing George Floyd uprising maneuvered around each other in the streets of Lansing. And we all learned to live with the heightened threat of political violence. Meanwhile, the obvious exploitation at the heart of the economy was made clearer than ever as the so-called essential workers got the rawest deal of all. And then the Biden administration, quote, ended the pandemic by pushing us all back into the labor force. You'll hear us touch on all of these themes and more in the conversation. But what lessons are contained here for the purpose of our investigation on this show into the workings of power? Late in the episode, I mentioned a book by Andreas Malm, Corona, Climate, and Chronic Emergency, which helped me a lot in understanding the COVID pandemic not as an exceptional event, but as a predictable one, a man-made natural disaster not unlike a climate disaster, and driven by the same processes of extractive capitalism. We are living in a time of chronic emergency. This is our condition. I'm far from the first person to argue that we need to politicize the question of how we respond to emergency. In the disgraceful government response to the last pandemic, we can see a preview of how we might respond to the next one. Are we prepared for the next pandemic, the next climate disaster, or the next mass casualty incident that we will experience? This is a question that we all, rationally, ought to be very concerned with. And you can hear me and my housemates being concerned with it in this conversation. How vulnerable are we to the next emergency? Very. How certain are we that aid and recovery will arrive and be in our interests? Not at all certain for the majority. 
What guarantee do we have that we'll be cared for and made whole? None, aside from whatever personal insurance for health or property you may have. We can pray that someone will arrive to save us. We can demonstrate in the moment and demand political relief, but we lack forward-looking guarantees. No wonder we are all so anxious. This is a way of answering the question asked by some economists lately. If workers are doing relatively well under Bidenomics in terms of income, why is economic sentiment so low? The reason is obvious. It's obvious. Just listen to this conversation. Listen to any ordinary person. Yes, people got some unemployment checks. And yes, they're getting paid a bit more. But our future prospects are clearly worsening. What else could climate change, disease, looming warfare, and a crumbling safety net add up to? The lack of guarantees is what we need to change. Housing guarantees, income guarantees, job guarantees, guaranteed leisure time, thoughtful contingency planning and preparation, all adding up to a holistic and generalized social insurance. This is the kind of thing we would see from a government that was acting in the interests of the people amidst chronic emergencies like the pandemic. Obviously, to deliver on such guarantees amidst the unpredictable crises of the 21st century is no easy deal. But a justly governed society could manage it. So let's organize and govern this society soon, because clearly nobody is looking out for us. And in the meantime, we'll all do the best we can in the moment in which we find ourselves. Here's a conversation among friends about us doing our best to survive 2020 at Rivendell Cooperative House. Okay, welcome, friends. On this show so far, uh, I've been drawing a bit of a like impressionistic picture of the last 15 years of political development on the U.S. left as it was experienced in the streets and in like millions of organizing conversations among people of our generation. We're all millennials. And I've noticed in like trying to narrativize this whole period that it's really easy to be like, well, first there were the Obama years and then we had Trump and everybody fought in the resistance to Trump. And then we got Biden and now everything is complicated. And it's like 2020 kind of like drops out or <laughs> skip right by it. But then when you think about it, it's like, wait, how does that change the story? Like <laughs> 2020 is it's like sometimes it feels like a nightmare that I lived through or maybe like the best summer camp that I ever went to. And <laughs> it was sort of like defies, I think, a lot of narratives. And so I uh, realized that we needed to do an episode that was just about 2020 and its kind of wooliness. And in thinking about that, I realized that we just had to do it here at Rivendell with the housemates because you are the people that I spent all of my time with in 2020. So I'm glad to be here. I'm joined by my housemates, Marshall, Ashlyn, Savannah, Katie, and my wife, Dinah. We are all members of the Spartan Housing Cooperative, and we all lived here under the same roof in our cooperative house called Rivendell in 2020. Uh, we're all sitting around here uh, at our living room table. And uh, let's just start by having each of you, starting with my left, um, say your name for the listeners. Uh, when you moved into the co-op, like we do um, when we tour prospective housemates. Oh, and one thing you like about living in the co-op. Okay, my name is Katie Fournier. I moved into the co-op about, mm, like, September of 2019, so really five months before the pandemic started. Um, not a long time. I'm moving here from Kalamazoo to Lansing. And one thing I love about the co-op is we have this oasis backyard in the middle of the city. Great nature and great gardening space. Thanks, Katie. Hello. Uh, my name is uh, Ashlyn. And uh, I moved here with uh, my partner, who will be speaking shortly. Uh, we moved here in June of 2020. Like, end of June, like, I want to say, like, June 20th, I think, was, like, our first day here. Something like that. So, like, in the middle of the pandemic. So, we, Savannah and I spent, like, the first half of the pandemic, like, together in our, like, apartment together. So, yeah, that was definitely an experience moving in the middle of a pandemic. Something I really love about here is I just love the community. Like, I just love having people here and being with other people and having people around that I can talk to and just share a life with. It's nice. 
Hi, I'm Savannah, the aforementioned partner. Um, I also came here in June of 2020 with my girlfriend. Uh, something I love about the co-op is that it's not a rental. You can paint your walls. There's a garden. They're not going to cover it with gravel. It's just nice. <laughs> Take it away, Dinah. All right. I'm Dinah. I moved here with Will six years ago. And, um, yeah, one thing I love about the co-op is house meals, cooking meals together, having people sit around a table and share food together. We have a lot of great cooks in the house. So yeah, that's really nice. Hello, my name is Marshall Clubeau. I moved into Rivendell September 1st, 2017. So uh, just over six years now, same day as our roommate, Nikki, who couldn't make it with us this evening. Shout out to Nikki, real one. My favorite part of intentional living at Rivendell uh, is really the shared community gardening and meals together as a house. Uh, the unique atmosphere of activism in our house has also been uh, definitely a fun learning and life-defining experience. We have walks of all life come through Rivendell, and so it's really been a fun to meet the history and make history. Maybe we can share a bit more as we go about the Spartan Housing Cooperative, of which we're all a part. But just briefly, I'll say that our house, Rivendell, is one of 17 houses in the system. There are around 250 total member owners of the cooperative, and we have uh, 10 of them living here at Rivendell, including the six folks sitting around the table right now. Uh, so the topic of the episode is 2020, and let's just go in the same direction and ask, oh, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say, remember 2020? I remember Zoom <laughs> becoming, <laughs> like this was how you talk to your family, this is how you talk to your friends, this is how you talk to your, for me, uh, my coworkers every day because I was working from home all of a sudden. And I remember all of us kind of like gathering up in the attic sometimes and working in the same room together on separate laptops it was sometimes funny it was sometimes weird sometimes it would be in the basement or the living room we'd all just kind of like huddle together or be in separate parts of the house knowing that we were working side by side and just kind of absently like talking about when this thing would end <laughs> maybe two weeks i remember at one point saying to someone two weeks stops i was like this is a fantastic vacation uh it was not a fantastic vacation <laughs> it would soon become our hell <laughs> but i mean no. you know, hell's a strong word. no hell's a strong word there, there were definitely you know upsides there were hell-like attributes they were they were yeah, well, was, let's keep it moving then to Savannah and ask yeah, the same question. Yeah, Rem, uh, remember 2020? Okay, so the first thing I think of is empty streets, like specifically the like interstate that ran up past her old apartment and just like being able to go on the bridge over it and there was nothing and I would imagine a train running down that line instead. It was nice. Mm. Um, also just walking in the middle of the street. Just there's no traffic. There's nothing here. Just use the road. It was beautiful. Yeah, I think I think that is important to know that like at the time, I mean, everywhere, but specifically where we were was also like there weren't any businesses that had like essential personnel because it's all like government buildings, so they were all. It was. It's already empty. a ghost town. Weekends and nights there. Like, <laughs> so yeah, so the there pandemic. was there was zero people. No one. <laughs> empty. Well, what about you, Dana? I feel like. When I think of 2020, I think of an alternate universe where I was in a lovely nature dream where I didn't have to work or even see a lot of people or put anything on my calendar. And I felt like I was just like sinking into the earth and becoming one with the green things. I want what you're having. It was really, it was really nice. It was a spiritual experience. Yeah, I feel that for sure. And it's just like, I don't have to do anything. I could just be. Yeah, I just get to like exist and like. You mean I get to perfect the art of sourdough finally for the, the thing I've wanted to do forever? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't give a shit if everyone else did it. I make sourdough today. Like, 
Yeah, like, like, yeah, like, it was really, like, I, like, the days were truly my own, right? I can really carpe that diem, if you will. <laughs> what about you, Marsh? I remember loneliness, honestly. Being single in a house where everyone had a partner was uh, hard. Uh, I remember, you know, community being the antidote, though, to loneliness. I remember, really, we had a rocking garden. Mm, I had two ponds with fish. That was a lot of fun. A lot of fun work that year. We were remodeling a house in Milford an hour, away, hour and a half away, but you get there in 40 minutes because, like was mentioned, you had empty roads, uh, really apocalyptic highways from here to Milford. Quite an experience transforming the state like that when no one's out on the road. But it was, it was good times as well, living in community. We, you know, we cooked house meals five days a week. That was super fun. It was fun to have people around, but it was also, you know, you're cut off from the world. So definitely the social isolation was tough, but we stayed safe as a house and really uh, cooperatives. You know, we have 17 houses, like Will mentioned, and our cooperatives were resilient. We only had one or two cases for the first several years. Uh, and, you know, people were able to have meals brought to them and really taking care of each other. So that was pretty remarkable uh, for our cooperative to achieve that. The unemployment was the thing that I think allowed a lot of people to be carefree and sink into the green earth or uh, <laughs> whatever it might have been. Definitely. So uh, who here ended up on the pandemic unemployment? I mean, maybe say what, what you were doing beforehand and then and then what happened with that situation. Um, yeah, I was working at a pizza place, which like it wasn't bad. It was fine. You know, it wasn't like it didn't pay me. Um, it was pizza. But yeah, it closed. And then the what thought might be a close for like a week turned into two weeks, which turned into a month. And then I was like, oh, I should probably maybe figure out a way to get some money. <laughs> With, uh, uh, and then, yeah, I mean, like, I think that it, the anxiety that we were talking about and the sort of like, you know, sadness that like there, it definitely helped mitigate some of that, like, it, it was an interesting thing feeling in a way that you're like, oh, man, the people who are in charge are doing something to, like, actually, like, help people to an extent. More right. in, in, in a larger way than I feel like they really have done in a long time. What about Savannah? Oh, my God. Okay, so, like, I was a server um, in the morning, and I was a line cook at night, and it was backwards in that restaurant because I was getting, like, shit tips in the morning and then overworked on the salad line at night. Um, so when they, like, laid me off, really, I just, like, didn't get called into work that week. Like, <laughs> it was practically overnight, and then I never heard from them again. Ash kind of had to nag me into getting onto the unemployment because I am so averse to paperwork. Like, administratively, I'm not a functioning adult. Like, I'm barely a person. It's, it's, it's insane that I have any sort of paper trail at all. Like, <laughs> but, um, no, they, uh, the, the unemployment checks were, like, for me, it taught me that, um, I can be bought off from revolution. <laughs> Like, this is, and not this is for a real. lot of money, this like at real. all, like, it, like, like, yo, that unemployment, what was it like, like 500 a week? I was like, yeah. I'm okay. I garden, I cook, I sew, I do hobbies. I stay in my house and quiet. I was like a good little housewife to no husband. Okay. Like it was, <laughs> it was, the house was my husband. Okay. It was, it was beautiful. But also if that money wasn't there, I would have gone down to the Capitol building and started throwing all the top cocktails like that day it would have i i would have been rabble rousing everybody i'd be like fuck the consequences burn it like <laughs> but no 500 a week is what it takes for that to not happen noted well uh so i i remember you saying like the pandemic unemployment was the first time in your, your life maybe since you were 16 or something that you had not had to work oh yeah no um first time that i can like I mean, I don't know. I joined the workforce like really early. And before that, I was just like, my mom was disabled. So it was a lot of uh, just caretaking and hustling. And it doesn't feel like I ever had like a break. Like not only did I not have to work, I wasn't taking care of anybody. I wasn't like, 
I mean, I was in a co-op where other people participated in chores and it wasn't just me doing everything for everyone. It was like me and my sister just trying to take care of our mom. Like that was, that was my teen years, you know, and then college and then being a working adult. And then, and then the world ends, um, the apocalypse is happening and I get to go camping and (laughs) have a break and just rest, just chill. Like I, I think about it a lot. I feel like it it definitely felt like it was the most money I'd ever made in my life. Yeah. The unemployment checks. Yeah. Yeah. Like hands down. Definitely. Like hands down. Like unquestionably. Like on like a weekly basis, like a consistent weekly basis. Yeah. Consistent. Far and away the most money. Like like my, I I believe far and away that like my income for that year from the unemployment is higher than any other income I've ever had. Like bar none. (laughs) <laughs> that shit was frustrating though i had to wait like eight months to get it I, mm-hmm. I hopped through so many hoops sat on hold so many times and so you know you, i was doing maintenance before going in our co-ops and that kind of went to a heat you know we kind of stopped doing indoor maintenance try to just stick to exterior and so that on that that literal work dried out activism's pretty dead my other jobs so it was it was definitely hard i mean i waited so long to get that unemployment check but once it hit it was definitely life-changing was able to put some away for retirement like i've never been able to do that that feels good i hate that system in a lot of ways but also it was the first time i was able to do that so definitely had some perks katie what, what was it like being someone who uh reported to the Zoom office and uh, worked every day through this time. Um, You know, at first it was brilliant because no one ever wants to leave their house for work. Um, (laughs) And so I got to be in my pajamas during work and that was fun. But like all of the perks just kind of started washing away when you got to see other people just like not work for a second. And it like I just had come out of college where I was working three jobs at once and going to college it's my first job. I'm still burnt out from that. And yeah, it's it started to really suck working from home and like wanting to participate in the like things that everyone else was doing, like making bread and making art and um, having some of that extra time. But I just didn't have it because I was still working. I remember feeling like throughout the year it was like I was working for Sunrise still in this year and we were like doing what felt like very existential work to be part of defeating Trump and get ready for the Biden administration. But it was like being on the zoom grind and then never leaving the property of our house. Yeah. You roll out of bed and I'm in my office. (laughs) It was like, And then, and we were doing so much gardening and it was like so much of the house life was so rich that year and it really felt like I was and I had been traveling so much too like I was gone like more often than I was even home in 2019 because the Green New Deal was going crazy and then it was so I was I was home more than I had ever been in years and it it, I almost started to question like which was uh, real like the real world or online and the more that the zoom work continued the more that I just felt my will to keep investing emotionally in things happening on zoom was just kind of withering and i and i started to believe that it was all an illusion or something (laughs) i was like nothing is real except like my block you know that i can see with my eyes sensuous reality you know (laughs) marsh you were a maintenance staff um of the our entire cooperative which has 17 houses and I wonder if you could say a little bit about the how the co-op as an institution responded to the pandemic, like as an affordable housing provider. Yeah, it's really remarkable. You know, our our co-ops date back to the late 1800s, um, and really the women's movement, group equity co-ops, uh, and really continuing against the odds for 150 years was really highlighted and peaked during the coronavirus. I mean, you have 17 homes with ranging up to 25 to 29 members. So you imagine, I mean, we had 10 members, pretty large house. We have a huge backyard. Some of these houses are just giant old houses with no yard. So people are really trapped in there. And like I said earlier, we didn't get the coronavirus inside the co-ops. It was really mitigated. 
Um, the maintenance staff had a really hard job. We had to contact the house at all times, making sure day of um, that you know we were testing and the house was tested good. We were doing all sorts of jobs. It was ridiculous. We had to show up and, and be the expert for 300 different fixes on 17 different houses because you couldn't hire your typical plumber. You couldn't hire the typical, you name it. Uh, the problem goes wrong when 29 people live together. So um, it was really a unique opportunity to, you know, how to, you know, being a sustainability minded person, you really kind of think about housing different once you understand how the shell works. It's really a living being. Like if there's holes in that wall, you're going to have living, living beings in it. So, uh, you know, really making sure water stayed out as well as the coronavirus. That was all an important job. Yeah. I mean, that sounds pretty crazy. Also, like you said, like having to like, like, because, like, just because things are shut down didn't mean that things wouldn't go wrong. Yeah, right? and, 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 and like, going to Home Depot, that, that was that was real apocalypse. Like, oh, oh yeah, because yeah. Home, like, Home Depot was, we, 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 named it, like, we named it the Everlasting Sunday. And so, you know, it's like every, every day is the Everlasting Sunday of haze. And so Home Depot was, like, the center of it all. It was really the brainchild. It was, like, the essential worker and, like, it was empty, but it was the same people that were doing the jobs all over still working. So it, it was really an eerie, eerie situation. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergence mag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. I'm just kind of moving us forward through the year. I wonder if folks would want to share just like, what was it like to be in the co-op? What were your feelings about the co-op in that year as a member resident? So good. <laughs> mm. I just, anytime I talk to anyone, I just felt bad for them for not living in the co-op. <laughs> I had a lot of gratitude. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, especially when you, I mean, it, it, there was that thing where you talk about you people were talking about the isolation and the loneliness and like people's relationships like fraying coming apart and we're it's out like here having bonfire you feel like sadness and like empathy for that because it is tragic but also they yeah there definitely was a like kind of sucks to be you though bud because I'm not having like like you know what I mean and I'm just here like I don't really like no because like, I really felt in this okay. time like like everybody needs to live in a co-op and I need yeah. to never not live in a co-op again because mm-hmm. there might be another pandemic or an emergency event that isolates us and I need not to be alone because if I were alone right now I would die or yeah. go crazy oh, and yeah. instead I'm having a grand time and I'm feeling closer to a lot of people than I've felt previously so do any of y'all you remember in April the 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 big vehicle protest that the that the, oh, the, yeah, the, the MAGA walking. people yeah. had yeah. operation oh, shutdown just horns blaring echoing for miles it started Whoa. so early because our apartment was right downtown too in that concrete hellscape we call a downtown yeah I remember waking so up I remember like and it started so early like like they were starting like six thirty seven a.m. and 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 just and just and just the the horns and. I woke up and I was like, what Operation is, gridlock. what, I was like, what gridlock. is yep. happening right now? Like, is, I'm like, what is, like, cause you hear it at first, you think like, okay, well, somebody's hogging a horn, whatever. But then like, then it's still going an hour later and you're like, what is going on? Yeah. Stop the shutdown. This was the day, this was the week before, I think they, they did the big vehicle protest where they had maybe a thousand vehicles from all over the state. And then it was like that same day or the next week they did the, um, they did the takeover where they had all the long guns inside the Capitol. Yep. 
And then these were the same people who then were plotting to kidnap the governor. And then they went on to take over the D.C. Capitol. There's a lot of Michigan people in that crowd. Oh, yeah. They were around all year. I mean, it was like those were the big ones in April. But then it seemed like pretty much any time you go downtown that whole year, you'd be liable to see some right wingers with long guns, with big guns. I think we'd be remiss, you know, in not mentioning kind of the universal uh, movement in this house to to be at Black Lives Matter protests. And as well as, you know, we had this kind of agreement that we would do these sessions together, you know, when we could, when we needed these like group therapy sessions where we just sit out in the backyard or in the basement. We all take a couple of minutes to just vent about anything we were feeling about the pandemic, about Black Lives Matter, about uh, whatever we were thinking about feeling at that moment. And it was a really great release and really good mutual support um, to have that sounding board and have that, you know, someone to listen to you and, and care about, you know, what's going on in your world or what you're thinking and feeling just for that time. It was crazy socially, politically. Mm-hmm. And I think I mentioned before, you know, just like kind of seeing like people in your lives like really reveal themselves uh, in that moment. Yeah. You were um, definitely going through it with some conservative relatives. Yeah, yeah. Then. I was in a lot of Facebook fights. I was mm. feeling, you know, in-person fights too, you know. Like I, I drove out to family to talk them through like homophobic, homophobic like Facebook posts and, and like racist Facebook posts. And yeah, it was hard to see people in that light for the first time and kind of grapple with that and try and figure out how you're going to make your way through and, and having the people in this house to like you know, vent to was, was really important as well as, you know, we could just show up together when it came to, you know, like demonstrating ourselves on, on behalf of our social issues. It, it wasn't just the right, you know, we were, we were demonstrating as well. And I thought that was really powerful. The, the, the George Floyd uprising kicked off at the end of May and then was going through June and July. And it was so different in every town and city around the country. I wanted to ask Dinah, if you would like try to characterize what the uprising was like and how it played out here in Lansing. Oh, man. Well, so there was like a kickoff huge rally that I don't know, many of us were at that was probably 2,000 people, maybe more, thousands of people there at the Capitol. There was a lot Capitol. of people. I think this was even before we moved in here necessarily. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. But it was at the end of May. Yeah. So like, yeah, I remember going to that and there were there was a lot of the whole Capitol lawn, which we know is really big and takes a lot of people to fill. It was totally filled. And then for the this was the first time I had ever experienced this in Lansing. Some young people like high schoolers, I think, led a march down to the highway, like led us onto the ramp and onto the highway. And we just like took the highway and just like walked around whoever could keep up with the high schoolers was like what they were going fast was on this march so on that day this guy paul birdsong like took the capital and then took like that road capital ave or whatever it is and a bunch of people who were around him at that time he was basically like i'm gonna show up every day from now on like until we get some real change in this city, in Lansing. And so they just kept showing up every day on the Capitol steps. And it was like a ragtag crew of people. It was like people I had never seen. A lot of people I'd never seen before at any other uh, rallies. A lot of young people. And we did all sorts of things. We marched the mayor's house and we... Got caught in the rain. I remember the routine was like basically every day at 4 p.m. or something. It's like every day, 4 p.m., show up at the Capitol steps, and then we kind of sit around until 5.30. And then at some point, Paul says, let's march, and we march wherever. And we had good vehicle blockades. That was one thing that we had. So we were really good at taking the streets, and the vehicles would blockade the streets, and then we would hold the streets wherever around town. 
And our people had long arms and were like posted on the corners. And there was a lot of concern about whether the people that were with us were being secure with the weapons or not. And I mean, they really weren't. Uh, (laughs) I I was at a rally in which someone in a vehicle pulled out their weapon on the crowd. Um, And luckily the organizers that were armed were able to like shut it down because I think there was a standoff between arms, honestly, and both parties decided it wasn't worth it, but that wasn't, that wasn't cool. That was scary. No, the one we went to, that happened like, what, like three times? Yeah, two or three times in that long march. The people tried to do something. They had to really, were literally stopped by people with guns. We're like, you gotta fucking not, bro. Yeah. Like it, uh, and that's why it's important in a lot of ways, I think really important to have organizers for, you know, these events that really understand the, the importance of keeping people safe. Yeah, I mean, communal defense is important. Well, this became very interesting because it was like the guns were there to keep people safe. That was the stated rationale for the guns being there. But then the guns really made uh, some people feel really unsafe. And, it was <laughs> and that a, debate was happening. It was a situation where a bunch of people are thrown together, don't know each other. They have no pre-existing relationship. Who is this person? Are they a cop? You know, like, are they? There was a lot of distrust. And then there was like drama between people. There was sexual assault allegations flying around. There was like, and then there was like, who has experience with the guns? Who doesn't have experience with the guns? And is just like, you know, having fun with a rifle, like for the first time in their life and is not being safe. And I just remember this time when we were, um, we were sleeping, we were like, take the street under the house building. And we just like, set up there and slept there overnight. And there were people posted in the perimeters with guns to try to protect people, I guess. And there were people driving down the streets with like, who were known, like who had been tagging us and like stalking us and were known like white supremacists who were just like driving around the block, driving around the block. And it was like, what is this? And then there were a bunch of people who were like, hey, I just saw this person just like pointing their gun without it being on, like having the safety on. And it was like, it was so wild. And then I remember someone saying like, yeah, the people who were able to sleep at all during that night, it was like people who have like all the privileges and grew up like safe and grew up with money. And like the people who could not sleep and were like, up and like making sure everyone was safe was like the people affected by a lot of these issues and it was like it was real because they were all out there everybody Donna you ended up organizing this coalitional uh, action that was to to protect the vote um, should Trump try to steal it right after the election day and your mandate was basically to bring together the various left and progressive groups in the region to be part of this action and you had to basically like negotiate an understanding or someone had to negotiate an understanding around the weapons question, right? Because basically there was a camp of like mostly black organizers from Lansing who were like, we will not be here if we are not armed. And then there was like indivisible from Okemos being like, we will not come if there are guns. And Sunrise. And Sunrise also People said that. People from Sunrise saying we need, it needs to be, Nonviolent means there are no guns there. Nonviolent means no one carries a gun. Right. That's what people from, you know, the Sunrise chapter here said. And and I sympathize with both sides. Um, and we did have people walk out because they were like, if, if we can't call the shots on guns, we're not going to even be part of organizing or put our names by this. And the, the sort of compromise that we came to was sort of basically like you're going to bring the guns and keep them like on the down low like they're you're going to have them you don't have to conceal them but you're not going to have a big rifle like strapped you're not going to have strapped like you're going to have a small gun on the side of your and you're going to be on the perimeter Mm -hmm. and that was the compromise that we came to that feels at the time less safe how do you visually indicate, hey, I have a gun without, you know, using said gun if all you got is a tiny little piece on you? Like, 
I think we really need to be listening to marginalized communities on this issue because mm. they are the people who largely face the majority of hate crime in, in our world. And, you know, these people should be listened to when it comes to, you know, Second Amendment and gun ownership. And I, I can completely empathize with both sides of the scenario. It seems like there was sort of like a looming gun battle on the her- <laughs> that <laughs> that you're waiting to hear about like on any with 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 our guys and then the other guys both parading around the capital and the capital city with guns on a daily basis through the whole summer it was really tense and what we really had was a very intense plan with multiple scenarios like safety plans of what would happen if any of those happened, if there was a lone gunman, if there was a militia that showed up, if there was like someone on our side who started the fight and it was all like, what are we going to do in that scenario? Where are we going to bring people? That's like the safe spot. There was a church that had agreed to like be a safe space for people to go if that happened. Uh, So that was really where a lot of our focus went. That's heavy. That's heavy. It is. Well, I mean, I think, like, at the time, I was especially, like, really sort of trying to pay attention, like, not just what was happening here, but what was happening in other places. Like, I I followed, like, you know, what happened in Portland for a long time, and that was, like... My sister was in Portland. That was, like, months of, like... Like, even when, like, a lot of other places, like, had, like, calmed down, Portland was, like, going hard. Like, confrontations with the police and the government, like daily were happening there. It genuinely um, felt like the whole country was on the brink of a civil war and then it just kind of fizzled out. We kind of were waiting for the showdown right after the election and that's when the progressives were planning to like be able to protect the vote, which is what you were mobilizing to do, Dinah. But then like Jan 6 came like two months later. Jan 6 is like spiritually part of 2020. Yeah, it was all being talked about. That's what I never got about Gen 6, is it was all laid out. I mean, I, I we saw, you know, they it. weren't they hiding it. it. They, were, they were calling it out for months. Yeah. Yeah. It was everywhere. It was no, everywhere. It was the yeah. Like, I used to stay on there just so I can keep up with people from my hometown, see who's having babies, see what they're up to, you know. Get get a little cu- catch up on the on the latest gossip, and then twenty twenty was just like the George Floyd thugs are gonna destroy the city. Look what they're doing! Uh, it's, just, it's just a bunch of racist and ignorant, and like you only have this take because you live in a town with two thousand people who look like you. Takes that I I got in arguments, and then I unplugged and I haven't really been back on social media since. But this is exactly like what you were saying, Savannah, of the experience that it felt like really, especially in the summer, like June, July, it felt like we were on the brink of some kind of civil war or like really revolutionary. And being out there in the streets, it felt like this is different. This is pushing the envelope in a way that I've never experienced before. And like this could really change things this could make really make things happen and then it petered out and i don't really have a narrative of that but then it was like okay we're gonna ramp up to the election because that's really important and then the election happened and then it was another like letdown where it was just like fizzle into like well i guess we won and that's like a huge relief and we're gonna drink six bottles of champagne well, but like yeah, but how big yeah. of a win was how that? big of a was win it? was oh, it really and big. then january 6 happens and it's like actually this was a revolutionary moment for the right it was not a revolutionary moment for the left and that was like crushing end yes. to 2020 yes. a feeling of yes this is depressing we had all this momentum on our side and this is where it ended i didn't vote for him okay just to be clear just to be clear, but a little part of me kind of wanted Trump to win. Just a little. I, 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 Say I, more. Like, I mean, because, like, I knew the second that Biden got in, it would be over. Mm. Everyone who didn't have to give a shit would go back to not giving a shit. And what would be hold? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there definitely is that, like, complacency that, like, happens. And I mean, and you saw it happen. I mean, like, you know, there was a lot of more, like, unrest and there's a lot of, like, activism that was happening on the left when... Bush was president, and then as soon as Obama won, a lot of that, like, went away. I say this as someone who, like, wasn't necessarily plugged in necessarily at the time because I was younger. But, like, it definitely did, like, from what I understand, like, there was, like, a lot of, like, momentum that was happening before then. And then, like, it sort of, yeah, there is that, like, okay, well, now that the 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 left 
I'm putting big, massive, enormous air quotes around this right now. Uh, left per leftist, left leaning person is in office now. We don't need to have. There isn't that like sense of urgency. I heard to- incredible Im- hope from people about Biden from you. Will, I heard you uh, on ca- conference call calls out. with political call people. <laughs> I heard podcasts that you were listening to about, is he the next Roosevelt? Is he the next, you know? Okay, even in the moments in which we were marching for Black Lives Matter down the the road with all of the mansions leading to the, the mayor's mansion, mm-hmm. got all of these, these multi-million dollar homes on the Lansing River, and you've got signs out front that say, all are welcome here. Yes. Equity. Yes. And and that's that's really like one of the beasts that we're fighting is this this, you know, close to middle ground between conservative and and liberal who, you know, could real they really want equity and they want equality. But they're not willing not to do economic. anything. They're they're turning their noses up at us yeah. marching for Black Lives Matter down their street. Like what? There is no praxis here. Yeah, exactly. And then exactly. they have the gall to just be like, "Y'all are being divisive." Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, so, yeah, yeah. They, they, exactly. They, Whose side are you on? Yeah, they. We are being divisive. They like yeah. ha- it's just like intellectual. Like I want equality. Of course, I want equality. Why would I not want people to be equal? Why would I not want? women to be treated the same as everybody else. Black people should be treated just like everybody else. But then like when it, but they, there, but there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what getting to that actually looks like. And those are your Biden voters. Yeah, exactly. Those are the people who voted for Biden. Those are the people who pushed oh, it. And they're the people who, who are like the, the sort of the, un, like you said, well, you the, the unspoken, vote. the somewhat <laughs> unspoken. <laughs> yeah. The sort of unspoken clear, person. I did vote for Biden. It just didn't feel good. The, one of the big first things that really uh, actually surprised me about the Biden admin I didn't really expect them to do that much on most of the issues, but I did think, okay, thank God, we'll finally at least get some adults in the room to uh, manage and uh, draw down the pandemic in a responsible kind of way. And I thought that the Biden administration uh, COVID policy was going to be dramatically different from the Trump COVID policy. And I was I was actually right, <laughs> but it was that the Biden policy was to basically get the economy back open as fast as possible and declare the pandemic over as a matter of policy as fast as they could humanly manage it. And that was like one of their big agenda points in 2021, even while their like economic build back better agenda was still alive. And I was still in support of that. Like that was pretty horrifying for me to realize how like, I don't know, I guess I was just naive. I thought that like, okay, we're going to get some real, some real adult scientists in the room, but it was like, I no, mean, and then by September 2021, it was yeah. like... And I mean, if I may, Will, I mean, I kind of wasn't really surprised because the whole... I mean, I, I knew immediately what his, like, return to normalcy policy right. meant. I knew right exactly yeah, I like, knew exactly what that meant. That meant was, yeah, we're going to go back to normal. Normal being 2015, which, like, mm. isn't... Like, 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 or like 2014, maybe, right? Like, pre you know, like, the election. Years that led up to 2016. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, and it's like, it, it, again, it shows a fundamental misunderstanding of what caused the Trump era. Like, it, it was that 2014 era. Like, it doesn't, it, this didn't just happen. Trump isn't the disease, Trump is the symptom. And going back to the era leading up to when the symptom presented itself doesn't fix the fact that the symptom is still going to present itself. Yeah. I felt like the vibe really shifted around here when the unemployment ended. Mm. That was like the biggest. Yeah. I noticed a real change. That was, I think, in Michigan. I looked it up. It was September of 2021. And and it finally, and it was like, back yeah, back to reality. Summer camp is over. And then like seeing everything, like you were saying, like, like the early days of the Biden administration, right? We're like. You know, on paper, everything should have been great. We had the Democratic president. We had a Democratic Senate. Uh, I mean, even the House, I believe, was even, like, Democratic. Trifecta. Yeah, like, like we had everything. And then nothing happened for two years. (laughs) Which, like, not to put it on, not to name names, but two specific senators managed to derail 
everything Christmas for months I mean, on cinema. yeah for, <laughs> cinema and making for months <laughs> on end derailed everything and stopped anything remotely close to progress from happening like just day after day week after week month after month year after year like just nothing happens and it was like it was like baffling to me to like what and infuriating to now, watch it happen. everybody has to go back day. to work which news alert people hate going to work and also especially when also all of the things the other things you said you were going to do you're letting two people who are supposed to be you know on your side no it's you're right you're right and it was like then it was like the end of 2021 so i don't know my my vibe was always that like 2020 had a lot of upside and silver linings even though it was also terrifying and horrifying and then it was like towards the end of 2021 and 2022 that was like the real bad vibes and it felt like it wasn't just here in our house but it was like everybody i knew felt like was going into utter mental health crisis as we got into pandemic year two, pandemic year one, you know, had some redeeming value. Pandemic year two and three was like actually hell. That's where I saw a lot of people turning on each other, mm. like in friend relationships and intimate relationships and like organizational relationships, just like a ton of just like explosive conflict that is like, I will never speak to that person again. And speaking of apocalyptic uh, images, I remember being in Chicago at the end of 2021 where we got COVID. I got COVID in Chicago for the first time. Was this and Omicron, Delta? It was op- Omicron. And we were standing in a line that was like wrapping around the block for the, for like the only place that would give us a PCR test. And they were like about to close. And, and there was like, we can take 10 more people and the rest of you have to like leave. And then it was like, this is Biden's COVID policy. Like Omicron hit us. And it's like the biggest wave we've ever seen. And yeah. the we testing test. capacity, the like at home test, the PCR test, the treatment. Which existed vaccines, in 2020. It, it was like. Was now gone. It was all gone. Yeah. They just stopped showing us the numbers. That was the only thing that changed. And I was reading this book by Andreas Malm called Corona Climate Chronic Emergency. People should read it. But it was like, yes, this is also this is also the result of extractive capitalism because zoonotic spillover is a process through which humanity comes into closer contact with wild nature on the verges of its cities all over the world. And then humans get viruses. And this is also predicted to increase. And there will be another pandemic because of this same process that is happening for the same reason there was the first pandemic. And it's because we're deforesting all the forests of the world. I was like, ah! Yeah, really blackpilling stuff. Uh, (laughs) There's not going to be another 2020, um, but there will be something else. So... So, so predicting the future is, is, is not an easy thing to do and we're not going to really try, but like, what did we learn if you were to take a lesson from all of this about, uh, how to be prepared for the unseen and the unknowable, what would it be? I'll just start with, uh, I wrote this, um, um, March 18, 2020, and it still holds true. And I, So the ever-growing crisis of affordable housing and homelessness can affect anyone, anytime. Cooperative housing and intentional community are a solution that needs to be more supported by lawmakers, city officials, and community members. Cooperative living, you've heard one example here. There's a lot of different types of cooperatives. You know, community is the antidote to loneliness. You know, whether it's living how we live in group equity or relying on your neighbors to help mow the lawn, cook food, say hello, make sure you're doing all right. Uh, Really, social isolation we learned from COVID-19, it didn't change that we have suicide epidemics all over the place. But, you know, looking from farming community to teens bringing weapons of murder into schools, loneliness is affecting the world every day. And so really, we got to keep building community to try to end loneliness. Yeah, agreed. I think that would be the same takeaway. Like, I think 
that the quality and depth of relationships in my life was a big factor and thinking about where where I had that in the co-ops and in some of my relationships that felt more resilient and then the places where I didn't have that and especially the capacity to struggle or have conflict and then stay in relationship those were the places that really broke under the pressure of the unexpected like calamities of 2020 and beyond so it really brought home to me the need to deepen and like improve the quality and resilience of the relationships in my life um, yeah, what I learned is that money isn't real, uh, work isn't real, the law isn't real, the government isn't real, borders, they're not real. This whole thing we call America is just some bullshit that we make up. You know what is real? Is the people sitting here and in our neighborhoods, um, people are real, land is real, food is real, money isn't. It's, 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 it's bullshit, um, quit your job, throw some bricks. No change, no masters, you have nothing to lose but your shackles. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I would echo a lot of what everybody here said. I think also, like, the importance of, in, like, the true understanding that, like, in a lot of ways, we do only have the relationships that we build to rely on. Like, at the end of it all, like, when the world feels like it's ending, that's who you have. You don't have, you know, a government. You don't have... It's like, it's not like, it's it's not about like abstract things like country and patriotism, right? It's about the people you know, the people that you can speak to, the people that you can touch and feel, and the people that you can personally like feel connected to, right? And building that on larger scales is what's going to allow us to like deal with anything in the future. Especially in in the long term, like that's what's going to allow us to survive. Thanks. Um, I would just echo, you know, the sense of community and in an age when we are more and more diverging from traditional families and family structures, um, the expectation to have children and live a nuclear family life, uh, it, it doesn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. It, you know, we can choose the life that we want to live. We can choose the people that we want to spend our time with and who we want to support and what kind of life we want to be a part of. And also, you know, we we have a lot of kinship in, in poverty. We have a lot of kinship against, you know, those who would, would work to keep us oppressed through money <laughs> and through wages and through capitalism. So we have to unite as a lower class to bring more equity into our lives. Keep the momentum. I'm going to I'm going to second the motion for relationships. I'll second the motion for cooperativism. I also think cash transfers are a big part of the story. I think the unemployment <laughs> mattered a lot. The unemployment bought us the time with which we could invest in our relationships and strengthen our cooperative. And that did come from the Federal Reserve. They keystroked it into existence. So, yeah, because it's uh, imaginary, and they could have done that the entire time. They could do it again right now. I don't know if they ever will again, because yeah. it seemed kind of related to the fact that we had an uprising. Not <laughs> the only reason, but it wasn't not a reason either. I think, right. that, I think it's the exact opposite. I think it was done because they knew that without doing it, there would have absolutely been an uprising unrelated to the police murdering somebody in the street. Like, if they had not given people money, it would have caused a massive problem. That was their attempt to mitigate that from happening. Unfortunately, police are trigger-happy, and they caused something to happen anyway. But that was, like, an unforeseen thing the government didn't expect. Instead, American consumers literally had so much money in their pocket that they kept the entire global economy running by buying, like, what was it that we were buying? What's a package you received in 2020? I bought a yarn swift. Hand vacuum. (laughs) (laughs) Chicken supplies. I bought a whole ass computer. You bought a whole computer. 
<laughs> like a, I bought like, a Nintendo Switch and Animal Crossing. <laughs> I, bought, I got so many books. So many books. I honestly invested in a sweet business that's doing water filters down in Guatemala. True oh, story. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. I had my fair share of fun spends, but that was just one thing, you know, so that money, you know, so that, that might have saved some lives, but did it keep the line going up? Yeah. I'm yeah, not so sure. Yeah, yeah, line go, line go up, Marshall? Okay, let's stop there. Uh, thanks, friends. This was really fun. I enjoyed this a lot. I hope you did too. It yeah, good. it was good. Thanks, thanks for good. your participation. Yeah. <laughs> reminiscing with y'all. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been the Hegemonicon. Let's talk again soon. <laughs>